The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 19 together. Uh, We are continuing tonight in our series. It's called Curious. Uh, The sermons in this series are based on your questions. So uh, the hope is that you've had an opportunity to get some clarification on things uh, maybe you have had a hard time understanding about the Bible or clarification on questions that you encounter while you're living and sharing the gospel with people in your life. And so that's kind of the thrust of this series Uh, One of the ways we gave for you to ask questions was through social media, and uh, I was especially blessed by the questions that one uh, family in particular submitted, and and for a couple reasons. The the first reason is that it was very clear from their questions that they took the series seriously and took time uh, to think about fruitful and helpful questions. Uh, And it was also apparent from uh, the way they wrote this out that they discussed as a family. They got together, said, hey, our... Church family's doing this series, let's talk about this. And so there was discussion in the home uh, surrounding these things. And these, th- those are things that makes uh, a pastor's heart rejoice. And so I was just thankful to see that that's happening uh, out of an overflow of this sermon series. So I'm going to tackle all three questions uh, that this family submitted. And the questions are different. However, I believe all three can be faithfully addressed through the text uh, that we're going to be working out of tonight. So The overall title for this sermon is going to be, uh, How Do Christians Relate to Culture? Okay? So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Okay? Here we go. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Praise God for his word. Amen. So uh, the first question that uh, was submitted, uh, and and again, like I said, these these are different, but there's a a thread that's going to run through all of them, and and it's it's pretty amazing that this text, just this few verses, I think is going not only adequately, but faithfully be able to bring an answer to these things. So the first one was, how could God have allowed Pastor Vince to teach on and have extended worship on the one week where one of their certain family members was volunteering? That was the first question. And this may have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I think it's, it, it brings up an opportunity for us to talk about some important things, and, and, and these verses address it. So the first thing I want to point out is something that this question communicates that I think sadly is, is often missing. See, this person that asked this question is, is hungry enough and thirsty enough for God and his presence that they were bummed out to miss a service where we pursued God with even more intention and zeal than we normally do. 
I think that communicates something that I would hope is present in all of us. Uh, I hope everybody's bummed out uh, if they miss a service, because I believe every single time we gather, God and his sovereignty has something for us, specific. He's going to do something in us. It's a part of the process and the sanctification of being conformed into his image. And so um, I, I think it matters that we gather together. I think it matters that we make it a priority for our life. Uh, the beautiful thing about this is that they didn't miss service uh, because the weather was bad or because the weather was good <laughs> or because they had come up with some other uh, lame excuse, all right? Uh, they weren't in service because they were serving. And this leads me to the actual answer to the question. So how could God, in his loving sovereignty, let us have a service focused on the spiritual discipline of worship along with uh, an extended time of worship on the week that maybe the one person in the whole church that cared the most about that and wanted most to be in it, that they uh, were serving to love and disciple our children. Why, why would God in his sovereignty orchestrate it that way? Well, uh, first of all, Paul says here, verse 19, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Paul says... That for the sake of the gospel, he has made himself a slave to all. He also says because of Christ, he is free. So the idea is that when we are made free in Christ, we are under no external bondage to anyone. But the love of God at the very same time, the love of God that is in us, compels us to humbly serve anyone and everyone. Isn't that what he said? I have made myself a slave to all. Now, uh, if you're one that normally bangs a tambourine and says amen real loud, I know that that verse maybe isn't one a tambourine verse, right? Maybe that's not one you'd feel so excited about. However, there's a lot of beauty in it, and if we understand it correctly, uh, in light of the gospel and in light of Jesus' life, uh, we should be excited about it because ultimately obeying Jesus and making ourselves low, serving, giving, these things lead to a joy far greater uh, than trying to, you know, lift ourselves up and take. So, amen. It's better to give than receive. Um, by way of example, just imagine, imagine this scenario with me, okay? Let's say you invited some people over for dinner. And in, in doing that, you decided you were going to make your absolute favorite dish. Okay, let's say... This, is, this dish is a lasagna so good that tears of joy flow out of people's eyes when they taste it, man. It is, it is the, not A, it is the lasagna, okay? So let's say you're making that, and you only make it once a year because it's real time consuming. Everything's from scratch, and the ingredients are real expensive, and there's eight different cheeses in there you can't even pronounce. So this is, this is that, right? So let's say you're making that. These people are coming over. So you make it. You put it all together, okay? You put it in the oven, right? And then the phone rings, and you don't look at caller ID because you're a fool, and you answer it, and it's that one relative, the one relative that has an ability to talk for so long, you can't really possibly understand how their vocal cords even function properly anymore. Maybe I don't, you don't all have that relative. I have a few. So uh, it's that one. Maybe it's just someone else you know. But So three hours later, you get off the phone, you walk towards the kitchen, and that, that familiar burning smell we all fear hits your nostrils. And so you pick up your pace, you run to the oven, open it up, and, and your lasagna is there, and it's a black smoldering brick 
It's done for. There's no way to save it. It's over. So you hurry up. You go to the, the fridge. The only thing you got in there is a pack of hot dogs. So you start boiling these hot dogs because people are coming to eat. You got to have something for them to eat. And so you throw those on. You don't, you don't even like hot dogs, but you got to have something. And, and your guests are on the way. So you got hot dogs boiling, your, your lasagna shot. Now, uh, let, let's say you, you asked everyone to RSVP to this dinner party that you're having. That, so you asked them to RSVP and let you know they were coming. Now, let me ask you a question, and I want you to answer it out of your own experience. You asked everyone to RSVP. Did everyone RSVP? No, they did not. And you, might, and you might say, well, what if it was all Christians you invited to this dinner party? Christians are the worst. That doesn't matter. They're terrible. Listen to me right now. This is not in the sermon. If RSVP to people's party, man, what's the matter with you people? Let them know you're coming or not coming. You lovely saints, man. I know you don't want to commit. I know. Everyone wants to leave a back door out, so may, I'm going to ride it up to the last minute. Just, if you can't go, tell them. And if you're coming, let them know, man. Mess up people's dinner parties now. Heck no, they didn't RSVP. So here's what happens. Three extra people show up. They didn't say they were coming. And that means the only way everyone else has something to eat is if you don't eat. You only had enough to make, you know, so much. So this is kind of a bummer, right? But it's not a real big sacrifice on your part because you don't like hot dogs anyway. And in addition to that, you know, you've got a pint of cookie dough ice cream hiding in the freezer behind some frozen peas. So... You kind of know you're covered. You're going to visit that later, right? So it's, it's not that big of a deal, but, but let's change one detail of the story. Let's go back and just change one detail. And let's say the phone call never happened, and you were never distracted, and that, that lasagna came out of the oven with a, a beautiful, bubbly, golden brown layer of cheese on top of it, man. I mean, this thing looks like Rachel Ray and Gordon Ramsay made a lasagna baby, and this is it. This is the most beautiful lasagna anybody's ever seen. This is your favorite dish. It's perfect. Now, the same slackers showed up without RSVPing, okay? Now what do you do? See, before it was just hot dogs you didn't care about anyways, really. But now this is your favorite dish, and there's only enough. If you eat, one of your guests isn't eating. If you were to make the choice to forego eating your favorite dish in the whole world so that someone else could enjoy it, that would be a pretty beautiful act of selfless love on your part. And for someone who genuinely enjoys gathering with God's people, studying his word and worshiping him together, this same kind of beautiful sacrifice is happening when we serve others so that they can be served. And when we serve so that others can be served. Every single time we lay down our desires and preferences to serve someone else, God is glorified. And if we see it the way he sees it, we are blessed. So God very well may have allowed that sermon and worship to be on that day to show the beauty of sacrificial service to both the one who served and those who were served on that day. That is answer number one. And I think all of that ties very cleanly into Paul's idea that I am free from all men but I have made myself a slave to all. Why has he done that? He says at the end, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may be a fellow partaker of it. Amen. Question two. 
uh, and this is where you might think it takes a left turn, but it, I, I really don't think it does. All, all, it's, it's amazing how this one short text is, is going to hit things that seem to be all over the field. Uh, the Spirit of God is, is good at doing that. So the question is, how does feminism line up, if at all, with a biblical worldview? Okay? Now, uh, right off the bat, I just want to say that in 2018, answering this question is like diffusing a bomb while skydiving over an active volcano. Okay? Like, it... <laughs> yeah. You can pull it off, but there's a lot of ways to get killed, okay, while you're doing it. So just, I, I want to just say that that's true, and, and uh, I'm, I'm humbly going at this and, and kind of throwing myself at the mercy of the Lord Jesus and asking for his spirit to help me. Um, I'm being a little dramatic in, in all of that, a little, uh, but let, let's start off with a working definition so that we are at least starting at the same place uh, when we, t- we talk through this, okay? So... Uh, The first definition for feminism given by our trusty old friend Webster is this. The belief that women and men should have equal rights and opportunities. Okay? Now, if this is your definition for feminism, then I don't think it is contrary to a biblical worldview at all. Okay? Now, many don't believe that. And and I I acknowledge that. So I'm going to explain in a moment why I said that. Well, you probably believe that because you're stupid. Well, maybe I'm stupid, but I don't think that's why I believe this. Um, I understand, also I want to say that I understand, that because women have often been oppressed and treated unfairly, feminism seems like a good label for those who advocate equality, right? If women have been held down, then feminism is, is trying to bring that up equal. I, I would just, I want to humbly submit to you that advocating for equality, regardless of who is being oppressed or treated unfairly, may be a more helpful and holistic approach. So I'll just, I'll just humbly give that to you. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're staring at me because I've already set the bomb off or if you're just trying to track with me. I'm just saying there's a lot of people besides women that are oppressed and treated unfairly. And, and I, think we, I think the Bible advocates for equality and fairness for all of them. Can you at least say amen to that? Like if, if you're not a normal amener, this would be a great time to like not leave the pastor up here sweating bullets, okay? So... Just, if you got it in you anywhere, squeak it out. Amen. You know, just let me know you're with me, okay? Um, I I also want to mention that this definition does not seem to practically represent what some who identify as feminists seem to stand for, okay? And this this is where I... If you're you're kind of militant about this, this is where you may get offended, but I just... I got to set the table fairly. Some who identify as feminists seem more interested in labeling anything that is traditionally masculine as toxic than they are making sure women are brought up to an equal level. So there is toxic masculinity. I know that and understand that, but not all masculinity is toxic, okay? Amen. Good. That was a good spot. Um, And doing that is just as unhelpful and unfruitful as those who've tried to put women and femininity into a certain narrow box, okay? It's, It's all the work of the devil. Um, neither, neither of these are the way the Bible deals with gender, and neither lead to uh, the beautiful vision God has given us for how men and women are supposed to relate to each other in his word, okay? So uh, Satan's about disunity and division all the time, and um, if, he can get, uh, if he can get 
races to be upset with each other, if he can get genders to be upset with each other, if he can get people of different ages to hate each other, people of different socioeconomic statuses to hate each other, if he can keep us divided as opposed to united around the glory of Christ and the furthering of his gospel, then his mission is accomplished. And so basically all I'm going to do is say, and what I'm going to work towards in talking about this is the vision that the Bible puts forth is that we would be united the way Jesus uh, and the Father are united, okay? And so um, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of willingness to listen um, and, and a lot of careful thinking. So uh, I believe God can help us, and, and I believe the Bible backs all this up. So uh, as I said before, many do not believe the Bible teaches that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Uh, many people believe the Bible is uh, the source of a toxic, uh, patriarchal, uh, male-favoring worldview that treats women as second-class citizens. In the same way that many think the Bible supports uh, chattel slavery, as we saw in America's early history, uh, where people are owned, abused, and forced into labor. It doesn't. Um, I believe both of these examples are the result of a couple of things. Okay, so think with me on this. People often do not read the Bible carefully. You think that's possible? I think it's possible. And they're often unable to interpret it without the blinders of preconception. If you come in thinking the Bible says one thing, or even if you come in believing a certain thing very strongly, we we have a a thing in us uh, that we're prone to as humans called confirmation bias. And so if I think something, uh, I'm I'm looking for anything to back up what I already think. We we very rarely uh, enjoy the situation or process of being disagreed with, right? Uh, you got to be a pretty special person if that's like on your list of things I'd like to do this weekend. I want to find someone to disagree with me. Um, you're out there. I know you exist, but uh, it's, it's not normative. So the second thing I would say is many people throughout history have used the Bible and, and, and what the Bible says to support these terrible attitudes and practices, um, oppression of people. Uh, this is absolutely the work of Satan. And it is consistent with his tactic of perverting good things God has given us and making them sinful instead. Uh, I would mention things like beauty, music, sex, art, food, uh, and many other things as examples of good things God has given us that Satan takes and twists and perverts and then uses against us. That's his thing. He has no creative power of his own, so he has to ruin good things, try to make them bad things. Okay, And he's, he's done that many times with the scriptures. Uh, gotten foolish people to go in with a confirmation bias, find things that they want the Bible to say, not take the Bible as a whole, but pick and choose, uh, and end up coming away with something that uh, the Bible doesn't really support. So, uh, This question fits squarely into Paul's encouragement in 1 Corinthians 9. Okay? What he's saying is, uh, to the Jews I became a Jew, right? to those that don't have a law I became the law, to the weak I became weak. What he's talking about is an intense commitment to cultural engagement. He will, he will lay down his preferences and he cares deeply about being able to go into any place he goes and find a point of connection and be able to let people know that the gospel is true, that Jesus loves them, that there is hope in this life and for eternity. And, and out of that same type of commitment, like first part of what I'm hoping comes out of this sermon for you is a stirring to have that kind of commitment. I'm hoping you read Paul's words and you hear him say, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And you stack up your life, your thoughts, the, the use of your time and resources against that grid. Do, do you do all for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to, to flex 
And that doesn't, we, we can flex in our methods and we can flex even um, in, in the way we approach people, but the message can never, ever change. And uh, that's, that's what we're talking about here. This, this absolute, being able to um, speak accurately and thoughtfully about these issues in this day absolutely is part of how we can join in what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians. Being able to uh, defend the Bible when it needs to be defended. Being able to show people that who maybe have, there's a lot of people that have probably stayed away from Jesus because somebody told them that this Bible uh, supports treating women unfairly and oppressing them. There's people that because of that alone, they didn't want any part of the God this Bible represents. How sad that is to stay, from, stay away from such a good, perfect, holy, loving Savior as Jesus because of something that's not true about God's word. We need to care about these things, right? You can't just watch me get all animated about it. I need you to care about it. I don't want you to listen to this just to say you listen to it. We're working through this so that you can teach it to somebody, so that you can talk about it, and so that by the Spirit of God, you can be a missionary wherever you are, okay? So um, we have to be able to speak accurately and thoughtfully about this issue, uh, in particular in the midst of the culture we find ourselves. So so does the Bible support a misogynistic worldview where men are the superior gender and women are second-class citizens? Does the Bible support that? Am I going to give you anything more than I just don't think it does? Yes. Uh, and if, you, if, you, if that was good enough for you, then quit it because that's not good enough. Uh, we need to go to the text and see uh, what it is the Bible really says. So first of all, I want to call your attention all the way to the beginning. We'll go to Genesis, okay? In the creative order, we see that God made both man and woman in his image. If you go to Genesis 127, it says this, he made them both, male and female, in his image. Okay, so the whole basis for, the reason we believe all humans have dignity, value, and worth is because they are the only thing in creation that God made in his image, all of our dignity, value, and worth comes from the fact that we were made by God for God in his image. That's why any of us have any value. Okay? you you, you got to decide if you believe that, first of all. Right? A humanist doesn't believe that. An atheist doesn't believe that. And that's okay. Uh, but the people of God should believe that. What makes us valuable is that God made us in his image for him to be his children. This is what sets us apart from every other created thing and gives us the potential to be known as the sons and daughters of God. I also believe that neither men or women fully reflect God's image alone, uh, and the good parts of both masculinity and femininity reflect more fully God's character and nature. Now, we need to be clear here, and I need to make sure I tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about uh, God as mother. God has clearly revealed himself to us through his word in masculine terms. He calls himself father, uh, and we should honor and respect that. There's a reason he's done that. Um, I would also call your attention to the fact, however, that Jesus was not concerned with describing his feelings uh, towards the city of Jerusalem using maternal language. If you go to Matthew 23 and Luke 13, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Jesus, in his love for Jerusalem, uh, used maternal language, not paternal language. And so there's, there was no conflict there for, for Jesus. He didn't feel like he was somehow degrading God's revelation of himself as father by saying he loved those people like, like a mother bird loves uh, her, little, her little chickadees, right? So Jesus wasn't concerned about that. Uh, the bottom line here is that the Bible has no problem seeing males and females as different but equal. Many times we do see that. We, we think 
Equal means the same and always has to. The Bible sees men and women as different but equal. Um, and, and that's not a problem. I think one of our biggest problems, the second point I'll give you, is, is the transposing of cultural gender norms onto what the scriptures say. Okay, The scriptures do record a lot of what happened in many ancient settings. And in many of those settings, women were not treated uh, with equal dignity, value, and worth. Now, the accusation sometimes comes that the Bible supports or even commands that women be viewed as less than men. Uh, but again, I believe this is the result of inserting our cultural perceptions into the mix. When I say, uh, when I say normal cultural gender, gender norms, right, how we perceive gender and culture, one, one example I'll just quickly give you is, is this. Somehow along the line, somewhere, it seems like somebody decided that God really likes the, the, the classically uh, kind of macho guy, right? Like, that's how masculinity looks, and, and if you're going to be a godly man, you have to be some kind of macho guy. you got to be like David, who was called a man after God's own heart, and, and he was riding around with a sword and just messing stuff up, killing giants, right? Here's, here's the thing I, I just want to call your attention to. We, we tr- oftentimes what happens, why things like this get perpetuated is because people try to turn the Bible into this one-dimensional thing that it's not. The Bible is very three-dimensional, okay? Because yes, David was a warrior, and yes, he was a man's man, and yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but there was somebody else that had God not used them long before that, David would have never existed. His name was Jacob, okay? He had a brother named Esau. That dude was out in the field hunting all the time. He was the dude's dude. He was the man, out just doing all the stereotypically macho masculine things. What was Jacob doing? The Bible says Jacob was at home in the tent with mom cooking. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. One of those two guys had sons, and then God used those sons to establish the tribes of Israel, and up out of that line eventually came David, and then eventually came Jesus. You know which one it was, Jacob or Esau? The guy at home cooking or the guy out in the field being macho? Which one was it? Which one did God use? Bible quiz. Jacob, did he fit the, the, our standard cultural norms of masculinity and being a, a macho guy? No, he didn't. And if God hadn't used him, then the guy down the line that was also very important for God's overall redemptive purposes would have never came into existence, okay? So don't, that's, my, that's the problem. People will go pick David and say, see, God likes people like David, and, and, and the, Bible's, the Bible promotes toxic masculinity. Well, <laughs> Way back earlier in the story, God picked the guy at home <laughs> in the tent cooking. And so the Bible isn't as narrow in its definitions of gender as we sometimes are. Sometimes we're very, we're very narrow. And sometimes we think the Bible supports it because we only look at one thing. We can't do that. Um, there is a much wider range of possible expressions inside of faithful biblical masculinity and femininity than oftentimes we allow for. And we need to we need to wise up about that because sometimes we are the problem. Sometimes we, as a culture, and even sometimes within Christian culture, have perpetuated certain things and, and declared that this is normative and the, and the only way God will be pleased when that's not what the scriptures bear out. And then we end up making the Bible look bad just because we're fools sometimes. Amen. Say, I'm a fool sometimes. Go ahead, say it. Okay, it's good for you to know. All right? Amen. So we, we can't just insert our cultural perceptions into the mix. Um, 
Amen. That's all, that's, I think you understand what I'm saying about that. So l- let, me, let me just call another couple things to your attention. First of all, um, I will call your attention to the book of Ruth, okay? It's a whole book of the Bible named after a woman, okay? So if the Bible writers uh, and the Bible, uh, those that God used to assemble the Bible into the canon, if they were as <clears throat> patriarchal and misogynistic as oftentimes the, the accusation is lobbed, I don't know why they wouldn't have changed that book to be called the book of Boaz, right? Because Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He could have easily been pointed to as the hero of the story, but somehow both the biblical writers and and everybody along the line, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Ruth. Ruth is shown, her her faithfulness and her desire uh, to serve God and her willingness and and faithfulness to stick with her mother-in-law and her willingness to be humble uh, these are the things that are promoted. These are the things that are shown. Uh, and, and basically, it's, it's her name on the front of the book. I, I would point your attention as well to uh, the book of Esther, an entire book of the Bible focused on the courageous faith of one person, a woman. And traditionally, Mordecai is, um, is given authorship credit for that book. Okay, so that book could have easily been called Mordecai, couldn't it? I mean, if you read Esther, if you haven't read Esther, go read it. You'll know what I'm talking about. Mordecai was writing it. He could have tweaked that story just a little bit. It could have been how, how dope he was, right? But it wasn't. It was about the courageous faith of one woman. God's not even mentioned in the book of Esther, right? God, God does not let much of the Bible go without him being the hero, as it should be. But the whole book of Esther is, 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 is really about one woman's willingness uh, to stand in faith uh, against some, some really tough odds. So um, it, it just doesn't fit the narrative of the Bible being so anti-female when both of these women, along with Rahab, uh, Deborah, both Marys, uh, and, and so many other women are written about with such honor and esteem. Uh, if the Bible was as anti-woman and, and so, so pro-misogyny uh, as it's often accused of being, that just that doesn't line up, right? You have to almost on purpose... <laughs> be skipping stuff to come to the conclusion um, that the the Bible doesn't give honor and esteem to women. Uh, There there have been a lot of people who have falsely believed that the Bible teaches women should be in the home, uh, specifically in the kitchen, barefoot, pregnant, right? That's that's the old stereotype. And there's people that think, they they honestly, people equate that kind of boxing in of what, what women can and should be. They equate that with the scriptures. They think that flows from the scriptures, and it doesn't. Because, I mean, this, just for example, it doesn't seem to be the picture painted in Proverbs 31 of what an ideal godly wife looks like, right? I mean, oftentimes we, we think of like stereotypical 50s America and, and, and the kind of boxes women were put in in that era and, and you know, long before that and in many other places and cultures. Women have been oppressed and treated unfairly, and, and, and men have lorded uh, over them in ways that, that the Bible clearly commands against, actually. And so I'm not trying to say that this problem doesn't exist. I'm trying to say that it, to blame the Bible is not fair. It's human sin that leads genders to war against each other and to try to subdue each other and to not see each other as uh, comrades and companions in a spiritual fight against Satan uh, and instead be at, at war with one another. The Bible is not the source of it. Let me just read you some verses. It's, it's not, this is not all of uh, Proverbs 31, but just let me read you some. Of, you know, this is classically known as, this is kind of um, what, what young, young Christian girls will go to Proverbs 31 and, and look for uh, 
inspiration on, on what it looks like to be a godly wife, and I think women that have been married a long time will go and read it and uh, ask the Holy Spirit to help them, because it's, it's, it's a lot harder than, than uh, sometimes we think. So th- this is the picture that Proverbs 31, Old Testament, paints uh, about this, this kind of ideal wife. She is like she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and gives food to her uh, and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Is she, is she barefoot and pregnant at, at home or is she out doing business? I'm just asking you what it says. I'm just reading the text. But the Bible's misogynistic, right? Okay, let's keep going. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself and clothing is fine linen and purple. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Doing more business. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hand and let her works praise her in the gates. Does that sound like a, like a beat-down, uh, stay-at-home, no strength, timid all the time, can't talk? Th- this, this idea that the Bible promotes that is foolish, man. This is the ideal, idealistic picture painted, and it's, this is a strong one. It talks about she makes her arms strong. I don't know if she's doing the shake weight or what, you know. I don't know what that means, but it's not painting the picture of somebody that needs, needs to be weak and dominated. This is, this is a woman that is handling her business on every front. Not even amen from the ladies on that. Guys, can somebody in the tech department get an applause thing behind me? I can't get these people to get it. We need help. <laughs> I just set you guys up right there. That's good though. Whether you say amen about it or not, it's good. And it's true. This, this is how the Bible describes women. This is, this is how the Bible describes an, an, an ideal wife. Strong. She's teaching. She's doing business. She's caring for the poor. She, she's not locked up at home doing no ministry, doing no business, uh, just being under the foot of her husband. Not at all is that the picture painted. It's just not there. Now, have some foolish men throughout time cherry-picked certain scriptures to try to subdue women? Yeah, I mean... That was the whole point of that movie, The Book of Eli. Everyone wanted to get a hold of the Bible because they know that corrupt men and their sin can get a hold of that text, and it has power. They can twist it and try to control people. Yes, that happens. But it's not because the Bible's bad. It's because sin is bad, Satan's bad, and sometimes people are bad. That's what it is. Many have used what the New Testament teaches uh, about gender roles and marriage as evidence for the Bible supporting male tyranny. Okay, so I kind of gave you an Old Testament survey along those lines. Let's, let's look at what the New Testament says. Okay, so first of all, let me just say this. 1 Peter 3, 7 does tell husbands to be gentle with their wives uh, as them being the weaker vessel. Now, that's one of those, um, you know, the, the, in, the independent women bristle when they hear that, okay? And I get it. I, that, that's, that's difficult to, to understand how that doesn't mean lesser than, that, that it's saying that 
he needs to be gentle with her because she's the weaker vessel. But here's, here's what the Bible is saying, and you gotta, you got to chill out for a second. And I know I'm in dangerous water saying that at that exact moment. Every time Natalie's mad at me, if I say relax, that's the worst thing. Guys, young men, if you haven't said that to your wife yet when she's upset, don't do it. This is bad. I don't think it's just her that doesn't like that. So what Peter's doing here in 1 Peter 3 is he is simply acknowledging a biological fact that most of the time men are larger and physically stronger than women. Can we just say that? Is that okay? Is that not putting women down? That's not pushing against equality. Physiologically, biologically, a lot of the time, most of the time, and maybe even more so when that was written, right? Because at that time, people hadn't traveled around the world so much, and so tribes had more stuck together. And typically, you go look around the world where uh, different um, ethnic backgrounds haven't kind of come together and you don't have the influences of all that genetically. Typically, a man and a woman in a certain tribe, the males are larger. Now, when you start to blend that around and everybody gets together, which is awesome, that's great, hallelujah, that's when you start to, you know, then it kind of equals out some. But the bottom line is, he's talking about physical strength. And he's saying, be gentle with her because she is weaker physically. Now, that command is not putting women down. It is telling men, and here's the thing, when you go, somebody goes and tries to turn this into a negative, it blows my mind, because what the command is, the focus of it isn't that women are weak, the focus of it is, is telling men to respect their wives, because it goes on to say, be gentle with your wives as a weaker vessel, because she is a co-heir, or a fellow heir of grace. So right, right at, as it's talking, yes, maybe physically, stereotypically, She's weaker, but you, gotta, you cannot use that to dominate her or think that somehow makes you better. She is a co-heir, a fellow heir of the grace of God through Christ. So the equality language falls it right up. And so, man, you have to quit reading really fast to make that into a verse that is putting women down. Basically, it's saying, what, basically the, 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 what Peter's saying here to husbands is, he's saying you better not treat them harshly or you and Jesus are going to have problems. He goes on to say, if you do that, if you treat your wife harshly, God, it's going to hinder your prayers. You and Jesus are going to have serious problems. And that makes total sense because Jesus is both the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He, he's, he's, he is the, the firstborn. Uh, he's the first one to be resurrected among us. He is, our, he, is, he is our older brother in Christ. And I'm just telling you right now, man, um, I've got little sisters, and I see many of you as sisters, and, 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 and if somebody treats you harshly, puts their hands on you, man, me and them are going to have problems, and I'm not even as good as Jesus. God is a good father, and he does not play about that. His daughters are not going to be disrespected. That's what he's talking about. I don't know how that becomes a negative. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Um, I just want to also say this as well, and I've told you this before. The stereotype Peter addresses here is not always a, the case uh, there are a few couples here at Love City even that I would bet on the wife in a fight in a heartbeat. So Peter is addressing something stereotypical. I know some of you girls are tough, right? And, and <laughs> I'd be having to pull you off the husband, you know, if I came over there and it was down to that. So I get it. I'm just saying that's, that's what that instruction is about. That is not in any way... Uh, Peter being down on women. It's lifting women up and saying, you better treat them right because they're co-heirs of grace, man. You don't get to push them down or, or because you're physically stronger to try to dominate them. That is not, Jesus will not tolerate that. Amen. Uh, I also want to just be clear and say this though so that you hear it. 
men that physically abuse women are a special kind of coward. And uh, if, if you are a man, at whether I don't, I don't think, I know most of you fairly well, I don't think this would be an issue here, but if, just in case possibly the temptation pops up, uh, or if, if somebody that you know, happens to hear this on the internet, if you've got some pent-up aggression that you need to get out, and uh, you like to throw hands or wrestle, uh, don't you dare point that towards your wife or any other woman, okay? Because let me just say this right now. I'd be happy to serve you. If you got pent-up aggression, you need to get out, you don't know what to do with it, I'll tell you right now, I'm, I, this is so serious. We can get some four-ounce gloves, we can get some mouthpieces, and I will serve you. I will help you. I'll give you an outlet for that. And, and, and some of you, because you love me, and, and you know, you're like, well, come on, man, you're getting a little old to talk like that, and I get that. I'm getting a little old and slow, and that's all right. That, that's, that's probably true. So if you're a young buck and you're tougher than me, because there's a lot of you out there, I'm sure, that's fine. I know, I know a few guys, very, I got good friends that fight for a living. That's what they do for a living, and they owe me favors. And so I can hook you up. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so if you're a guy and you got some pent-up aggression, you even think for a second you're tempted to lay your hands on a woman, just, just come see me, and I can get, we can put you into a situation where you can get rid of that. Okay? Amen. In, in talking about the New Testament um, and, and specifically gender roles and in, 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 in the marriage covenant dynamics, Ephesians 5 also comes to mind. Now, in Ephesians 5, wives are called to submit to their husbands, okay? In those verses, those very words are used. And again, this is a, 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 it tends to be a bristling verse. Um, but, but I would just ask you again to keep reading. And I would ask you again to think a little bit, Okay? The fact that this command is used to claim that the Bible is against women or, or subverting women, or the fact that many women hate that this verbiage is in the Bible, it, it's really because we aren't thinking it through. We don't really understand the totality. We, we might take a couple verses and say, oh, see there. But we, got, we have to understand that, that that command is given in the context of overall instruction about marriage. Okay, well, what else is said if we keep reading? What else is said in, in the rest of, and that's what I'm talking about, man. You can't just pick a couple of things. You have to look at all of what the Bible says. And I would say even what, the first thing I would say, if you bristle at that, um, or, or you think that means that the Bible's against women in particular, can I just say something to you? Yes, absolutely. Ephesians 5 says that uh, wives should submit to their husbands. Can I just read you again what Paul said here in, in verse 19? For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Would that not include your spouse? So right off the bat, if you're a woman that bristles at the fact that, that Ephesians 5 calls you to submit to your husband, Paul said here that for the sake of the gospel, he's made himself a slave to all, not just his spouse, everybody. He's willing to get low and serve everybody. Now, let's keep thinking. That would include your spouse. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, well, that's Paul that did that. You know, yeah, apostles and pastors, and, you know, they, they should live like this, right? They, they should um, do everything for the sake of the gospel, and they should, they should make themselves a slave to all men. But that doesn't mean everybody, right? Just because Paul did it, well, th the thought actually continues here. And, and in chapter 10, uh, the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 31, he, he kind of keeps talking about these same things, and then he concludes with this. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, 
Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Okay, so who is he talking to? Is, this, is it just apostles that should follow after Paul's example here? No, he says, whether then you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. Basically, he's saying, as I follow Christ, you need to follow this example that I've given you. And that's not, that's not written just to apostles, pastors, evangelists, you know, missionaries, and all of that. He's, he's talking to everybody. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we can't get out of this. Right off the bat, every single one of us should be saying, yes, in Christ I'm free, but I'm, I'm making myself a slave to all men. That I'm taking, by choice, I'm taking my freedom and I'm using it to serve others. I'm going to make myself low so that Christ can be lifted high. So just in general, that, that should bring something to bear about that. But going back to Ephesians 5 in particular, if you just keep reading, you'll see that after the woman is called to submit to her husband, in Ephesians 5, the husband is called to love his wife like Christ loved the church. That is, is the, the exchange. He says, yes, that, that wives should submit to their husbands. And he goes on and, and spends a lot more time explaining to the husband what it means for him to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And, and here, herein lies the problem. Herein is what we don't get and why this is an issue at all. Okay, Because if, if we really understood the call to love our wives like Christ loved the church and we actually walked in that by God's grace, none of this would be an issue. Because if you go to Philippians 2, what it says is <laughs> that Jesus, the glorious one, who before the foundations of the earth was there, the one who is the word that became flesh, King Jesus, Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself, that he made himself lower than every single one of us, let himself be nailed to a cross to provide the redemptive sacrifice for our sins. Jesus loved the church by making himself lower than her and dying for her. That's how Jesus loved the church. And so if a husband is going to love his wife like Christ has loved the church, what's he going to do? He's going to make himself low. He's going to prefer her over himself. He's going to be willing to go all the way to death to serve her. It's very intentional that this is the way Ephesians 5 calls husbands to love their wives. And when you understand that that man has been, he has signed up for the accountability that has to come with it, the authority to lead and love his family, to represent them before God. He's going to answer for them, and he has signed up to love them like Christ has loved the church. He has signed up to die daily by the grace of God, preferring his family over himself. If, if we understood what the call was, and if men walked in it more, the verses before about wives submitting to their husbands wouldn't even be an issue. What wife would struggle following a husband that is, keeps trying to get below her to serve her and love her? Where would the challenge be? It wouldn't be. And if people, see, people, people just stop at Ephesians 5 when it says wives submit to their husbands. See? See, trying to make women low. They don't, they don't see what then God goes and calls the husband to do, to love his wife like Christ loved the church. You want to talk about get low? You can't get no lower than that. You can't call anybody to a, a, a deeper depth of sacrifice than to love as Christ has loved the church. 
But they don't see that because they don't have the gospel lenses on. They don't even understand what that means. Oh, well, he gets to just love her, and she's got to submit. Hold on, man. And go to Romans 12.10. Here's what Romans 12.10 says, that for all who follow Jesus, that we should love one another with brotherly affection. We should outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Corinthians 9.19. I am free from all men, but I've made myself a slave to all. Romans 12.10 outdo one another in showing honor. These are just a couple examples of what the Bible calls us to as followers of Jesus. If, if we were out here not seeking to be honored, but looking to outdo one another in showing honor, do you understand what I'm saying to you? That I'm constantly trying to think about how to show you more honor than you can show me. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to lift you up and encourage you and bless you. If we live like that in a general way by the power of the Spirit, then all of, these, all of this gender war stuff goes away, man. Because then we're fighting for each other and with each other against the real enemy who is Satan that wants us at each other's throats and divided at every turn. That's the truth, man, and that's how it really looks. And the Bible in no way condones subverting, putting women into some narrow box. I've tried, I've tried to show you as many different ways as I have time for, we, we could keep going. But the Bible is uh, absolutely not the, the patriarchal, uh, misogynistic text and document that it is often made out to be. Uh, you have to think, and you have to pay attention, you got to look at all of it. <laughs> you can't just pick a few verses and decide you know what it's saying. Now, some of you, some of you are hearing what I'm saying, um, Romans 12 uh, that we should outdo, we should, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should be seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, you, you see what I'm saying here in 1 Corinthians 9.19, what Paul really is saying, that though I'm free, I'm making myself a slave to all men. Um, you, you see, uh, some of you are, are seeing the call to love your wife like Christ loves the church. Some of you are looking at the call to uh, then, then to submit to that and to help, help your husband to die for you every day. Where's the issue, right? Like I just, I just got to say it one more time. The Bible calls you to help him lay himself down for you every day. Do, do you want to make it hard? All right, cool. Your holy stares tell me you're getting it and you're excited, so good. But I, I just want to mention that, yes, all of this taken together, it can be scary for this fact, this, this reason, and it's true. People, you're hearing everything I'm saying, but you're saying, yeah, but people will take advantage sometimes, won't they? Right? Some of you wives are thinking, yeah, if, if I do that, if, if, I, if I submit and, and try to help my husband to, to love me well and, and love our family well and to follow Christ and to make himself low to, to serve me and serve everyone else, to, to love as Christ has loved, if I try to help him in that, that, that what some husbands will do is then not do what they're supposed to do and they'll take advantage of my meekness and they'll take advantage of me trying to do the right thing and, and then, then, then it won't work. And, and, and some of you husbands are thinking, if, if I love my wife like Christ loved the church, if I get low and I seek to outdo her in showing honor every single day, she's not going to come with me on that. She's just going to she's going to take advantage of that and trample all over me. There's fears that we have about whether or not somebody is going to reciprocate, whether they're going to do their part. But I just I just want to say this to you, um, and I don't know, I don't know. I hope this isn't tone deaf, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. I, I realize, friends, I am, I'm the demographic that everyone loves to hate, okay? I'm a pasty white, traditionally masculine male leader. Everybody likes to hate me. 
I'm the guy that's super privileged from birth, obviously. I've had everything handed to me because of all that, la da 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 okay? But I, I promise you, I could keep you here until tomorrow telling you stories of all the times people have taken advantage of me while I've been trying to love them. I could keep you here until you starve to death telling you stories of how many times I've, I've tried to get low and love people and been taken advantage of for it. And I, I just want to promise you that if you obey these verses and you seek to outdo one another in showing honor and you seek husbands to love your wife like Christ loved the church and die and lay down all of your preferences to love her well and wives, if you submit to and, and, and are thankful for the opportunity to help your husband along in that mission and that's part of the other problem that isn't even a part of what I'm saying, you know what? If we lived like this life was a mission, a lot of this wouldn't be a problem. You see, when, when we live like life is a cruise ship, we get to sit there and think about how we feel too much. If life was a mission and we were on a battleship, right, you can't, you can't tell a sergeant, hey, go take all these soldiers out here and, and go get this mission done, but you don't have any authority to make any decisions or do anything. Everybody's, everybody's dead. But that's the problem, man. Most of us have built an, an insulated, comfortable life to the degree that this, we, we don't realize the spiritual reality that this is a war that Satan wants as many people as possible to go to hell forever, and God wants as many people as possible to be with him forever, and we are the ones that God has made ambassadors to be spreading the good news of the gospel and hope and to kick down the gates of hell and kick Satan himself in his teeth. We, there's more to do, and if we paid attention to that and we were about the Father's business, we wouldn't be squabbling with each other so much. That's all I'm saying, okay? I promise you, if you obey these verses and you love like Christ has called you to, you, you seek to outdo showing honor to everybody. I don't just mean people you like, everybody. Somebody's going to step on you. Somebody's going to take advantage of you. But God will be glorified through it, and you will be obedient, and that's what matters. Anytime you're going to love for real, you're making yourself vulnerable to possibly be taken advantage of. And some of you have learned, and I promise you, I've learned those lessons too, the hard way, that sometimes... Man, grief is the price we pay for love, but it's still better to love. It's still better to obey. It's still better to do what Jesus has called us to do. Some people won't get it. Some people won't understand what you're doing, and they'll just take advantage of you because they don't know how to do anything else. But some people, when you get low, man, and you seek to outdo one another in showing honor, and you're humble, and you love like Jesus loves, some people are going to catch a glimpse of that, and they're going to be moved forward towards faith and trust in Christ because of your willingness and obedience. And if a hundred take advantage of you, but one has their heart touched and possibly changed and the Holy Spirit uses that as a part of the process of bringing that person to faith and salvation, is it worth it? I hope the answer is yes. Amen. The Bible sees men and women, every race, the disabled, and all people as equal image bearers and potential co-heirs of the grace of Christ. And so someone seeking for fair and equal treatment of all people, regardless of these differences, is operating with a biblical worldview. Humans in their sinfulness seek to oppress and dominate others, but if they do not repent of this, King Jesus is righteous and will deal justice appropriately. Amen. Last question. How does someone, particularly a youth, reason and have relationship with their peers in the love is love and love wins culture? 
when his or her beliefs are in the vast minority. Okay? So, uh, there's a lot that could be said here. For, for a more full dealing with this, I would refer you to a sermon on the website. It's called The Truth About Love. Uh, but I'm going to give you a summary answer here uh, for the sake of time. So I, I tried to boil this down to, to a statement. We cannot fear the lost or loathe the lost. We have to truly love the lost. That's what this comes down to. How, the question is, how do we relate to them? And, 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 and how is that tied to what we're talking about here in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23? Well, it, to me, it's very obvious. Paul is saying, I'm willing to do just about anything it takes shorting, short of sin in order to reach the lost. This, Paul's whole frame of reference was, it doesn't matter what it costs me. I'll, ne- I'll never sin. And, beca- and when he says, you know, I become uh, like a Jew to win Jews, like those without the law, uh, to win those that are, that are that way, I become weak. What he's saying is he's, he's, he will come as far as he can in finding points of connection with those people. Up and into, he, he, won't, he won't sin. He's not going to jump in with them and defy God, but he will do anything he can to find a place and, and an ability, a way to relate to them and to love them so that he can speak the truth of the gospel to them. And uh, specifically, the question here is the, the, kind of the love wins culture. How, how does somebody navigate that? How do you relate um, the beliefs of the, that, are, that are given to us from the scriptures with, with somebody that basically believes something to the degree of um, God just loves everybody, right? And so sin doesn't matter, redemption, the cross, the gospel, none of that's really a factor. God just loves everybody. Why wouldn't he love me? Why wouldn't he love each person? Uh, basically no admission or acknowledgement of uh, sinfulness uh, and basically throwing around this idea that um, they'll, they'll try to say that love, they'll try to say what we say, that love is the supreme ethic. But what's very key to understand is that we're working off different definitions. Okay, and this is why this is a drum that we've beat here from day one of Love City existing. We have to know what we mean when we say love, because there is no way to get around, and we don't want to, the importance of love in the life of the Christian. God has called us to two primary things. That's to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We've shortened that to say love God and love people. But if we are saying love and meaning the same thing the culture means, then it is robbed of its power, and it doesn't mean anything. Because for the majority of this culture that we find ourselves in now, what they think love means is tolerance. They think tolerance is the highest form of love. And when I say tolerance, I mean basically um, everybody gets to do them, right? And, and what love means is you just accept everyone just like they are. And, and you can find language in the scriptures that would even seem to go along with that, right? That, that Jesus calls us to come as we are. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Jesus does call us to come as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants to do something with us. He wants to take us from brokenness and darkness and hopelessness, and he wants us to bring us to light and peace and joy and hope in him. So he wants to do something with us. And so we, we need to, um, we, we can't be afraid of the loss. We can't be afraid of those that don't understand what God means when he says love. We can't loathe them. We can't uh, find our, th- think that we're better than them. Uh, we have to truly, really love them. And love is not tolerance. Tolerance is a cheap counterfeit for love. Love, as defined by the scriptures, is, is, 
it's sacrifice. 1 John 3.16 says that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The Bible calls us to look, to stare intently at the cross of Christ, to begin to try as much as a human mind can grasp what God means when he says love. He's calling us to love like him. And, and, and he's calling us to love like Christ. And when Christ came, when Christ came to love the world, he came in grace and truth. So yes, we are coming with grace. We need to understand that people are broken. We need to remember that we were broken, right? I've given this example before. I don't know a better way to say it, though. The Bible talks about sin and returning to sin. It's a, you end up like, like you're eating gravel, right? And if you walk up to somebody on the street and you see them just sitting there eating a handful of rocks and their, their mouth's all bloody, their teeth are all broken, and, and you walk up to them and they, they take some in their hand and they offer them to you, hey, you want to eat some rocks with me? What the Christian does is not look down at that person and say, oh my goodness, you are stupid, I can't believe you're sitting there eating rocks. Is there, what's wrong with you? That's, that's not the way we look at it. We, what, what we should do if we see this thing the way Jesus sees it is, is our heart should be broken immediately and we should relate to them and we should, we should be able to smile at them and show them our broken teeth because we used to eat rocks and we should be able to reach into our pocket and pull out some of the bread of life that Jesus has given us and, and ask and hope that they'll set those rocks down that they're chewing up and destroying their life with and they'll eat some of this living bread that Christ gave us freely. That's what this looks like. But a lot of times we have walked up as, as Christians and, and acted like we're better than the rock eater, forgetting that we were. And half the time, still are, right? Because some of you, every once in a while, and me, sometimes we're like, were those rocks that bad? <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yep, they are, right? Not me, you liar. Like Paul, we must find where we agree. You're going to run into a lot of people that will agree with you that love is important. That's what Paul means, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. Oh, you think love's important? I think love's important too. The Bible says that. Let's talk about what that means. What does that mean to you, that love's important? How do we relate to the culture? We find places where we can connect with them, places where we can relate to them, and we love them instead of fearing them or loathing them. We really love them. So the question to me, friend... And the question I would give to you is, do you love the lost? Do you love the lost? Verse 23 tells us that, if, that, that we can tell if we truly believe the gospel by answering that question. What did, what did Paul say? I'm going to read it to you again. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, let's be careful here. Doing the work of an evangelist, being an ambassador of the gospel, being a missionary for the sake of God's kingdom. These things are not what brings us into the gospel. It's, it's not what saves us, right? Those are, those are good works prepared for us before the foundations of the world. We need to understand that us doing those things should be a result of the fact that the gospel has changed our hearts. So when he says here that I, I want to become, that I may become a fellow partaker of it, what he's saying is basically if, if you love the lost and you're willing to do all that you do and live your life for the sake of the gospel getting to more people, that's a solid indicator that this gospel has actually reached your heart. If you fear the lost or loathe the lost or you can't really be bothered about gospel mission because you've got too many other more important things going on, that's a solid indicator that maybe this gospel never really has reached your heart and maybe, maybe you're a therapeutic moral deist. Maybe God brought something to the table that you thought you needed and, and really you aren't saved. 
And, and so I'm asking you a real serious question here. Are you hearing me? Do you love the lost? Do you love them? Do you care about the lost? Is your heart broken for the lost? Maybe it was at one time, and like the parable of the soils, your, your heart's been, been overtaken by the distractions of the world. Well, dear friend, repent today. Don't go any more days like that. Give that to Jesus. Ask him to return to you a passion and a love for the lost. Because if we're partakers of the gospel, if we're going to participate in what Jesus is doing in the gospel, then we're going to care. We are going to care for the lost and we're going to love them. And we're not just going to be a group of people that gets together, sings some songs, and feels good about ourselves. We're going to be about the Father's business. And we're going to do all that we do for the sake of the gospel. Man, that sounds extreme. It's just basic Christianity. That's all it is. I'm asking you to ask yourself if you love the lost. And, 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 and if you know your love for the lost is colder than it has been in the past, I don't want you to jump to condemnation. I don't want you to go into a tailspin of despair. I want you to take the time that we're going to have here in a little bit to come to your God in communion, to confess and repent and to ask him by his Holy Spirit to stir in you again a proper love and care for those that don't know Jesus. If you know it's not right, then just deal with it. And trust by faith that he's not going to cast you away as a result of your sin and apathy. That what he's going to do is draw you close. And by the power of his spirit, which is the only way it ever happened to begin with, he's going to ignite in you a passion and a love for people that don't know Christ. Amen. May we be a people who are willing to use our freedom to be a slave of all, that we might win some to Christ. May we be a people who seek for equality because of our biblical convictions. And may we truly love God and truly love people as we partake and participate in the beautiful truth of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank you for these questions. I thank you for these verses that, by the power of your Spirit, are able to answer so many different things. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, I just thank you, Lord, for the servant's heart that is present in this church. I thank you, God, for the clear work uh, of your spirit upon their hearts and, and the, the commitment to gospel ministry uh, that is found here. I'm thankful, Lord, for every single person that pours uh, time and energy and resources and uh, all of their life into the furthering of your gospel. I'm, thank, I'm thankful that you've assembled us together for this purpose. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that your word is true and it's, it's far uh, it's far more beautiful and deep than oftentimes we give it credit for. So many times we come and we try to make simple what is not. Uh, Lord, your, your word is not in any way condoning the oppression of anybody. And I'm so thankful that that's true. Lord, you are a God of love and you are a God of mercy. And you are a God that teaches every single person that's going to follow you that we should make ourselves low and lift others high. Lord, the beauty of that is if all of us will do that, then everyone gets lifted. But it's not us standing on each other. We're lifting each other up. And I thank you, Lord, you are glorified when a people will do that because it's abnormal. It's unnatural. Uh, Lord, we have survival instincts working against us that are constantly trying to tell us to get ours and make sure we make it. Lord, help us to care more about others making it than ourselves. And Lord, may that person care for the other. And God, may we all be able to 
trust you and your supernatural provision. Lord, I pray for every single person that's been hurt and taken advantage of in trying to obey the scriptures and love well. I pray for every single person, God, that their heart has been hardened because they tried to outdo one another in showing honor and somebody stepped on them and hurt them and that's made them draw back. God, I ask you to draw them in close to you, to pour in, God, healing living water into their heart, to, to heal that wound so that they can go again and they can... They can seek, Lord, uh, in vulnerability to really, truly love as you've loved us, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to just stir in this church a passion for your gospel and a passion for lost people. Lord, may we not be able to go many minutes or hours without the plight of the lost crossing our mind and heart. Lord, may we be a people of prayer constantly seeking you for greater understanding and, and for anointing and strength and help to be able to reach out to the lost and to show them the love that you've shown us. We need your help, Lord Jesus. Thank you that there is a way, no matter what culture we find ourselves in. Lord, the book of Acts tells us that you designate the time and place where we live, and so it is by your sovereign hand that we are where we are. So God, please, Show us how to love this culture well, these people. Help us to never fear them. Help us to never feel like we're better than them. Help us to love them because you first loved us. We worship you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.